Hi there, folks. Before we begin, we have an embarrassing correction to make, one that a lot of our fans picked up on. Due to a typographical error in our last episode about glass, we claimed the sun was 200,000 miles from the Earth. And that led us to the dubious claim that light spends more than half of its trip from the core of the sun to the Earth inside the sun. The angry GM, the one responsible for the research, the script, and the typo, is extremely embarrassed about this whole affair. Because he is a science wonk. Especially when it comes to physics and cosmology. In editing the script, he mistakenly removed a reference to the speed of light, which can be rounded off to 200,000 miles per second. But that left that number in place of the distance to the Earth, which varies between 92 million miles and 96 million miles, and... Anyway... Now, it is true that light spends more time trying to escape the sun than it does traveling to the Earth. It spends upwards of 4,000 years bouncing around inside the sun before it escapes and makes the 8-minute trip to the Earth. But that's due to a bunch of complicated electromagnetic forces that get in the light's way and the overall density of the sun. We should note that some sources estimate this number is tens or even hundreds of thousands of years based on variations in calculation methods for the density and permeability of the sun. But we digress. We are extremely sorry for the error, which many, many of you took the time to point out. It won't happen again. Until it does. Because we are, after all, human beings. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Thieves can't. We here at the Word of the Week are lovers of language. It probably isn't very surprising. We delight in knowing the etymology and derivation of various words. We love quoting random language facts, like the fact that English is considered a Germanic language, even though over 60% of its words are derived from the Romance languages, because of its structure and syntax. And that's why we don't get invited to many parties. See, language is something that to our current knowledge, is uniquely human, and that's to do with both our evolutionary nature and our biology. See, all social animals communicate with each other, bees, ants, whales, primates, and so on. And they use lots of different ways to do it, from sounds and gestures to entire body movements or even chemical signals. But when animals communicate, they are generally responding to prearranged signals in instinctive ways. When a bee returns to the hive and does a waggle dance that encodes the directions to a particular food source, yes, seriously, beekeepers call the movements that bees use to communicate waggle dances. When a bee performs a waggle dance, other bees simply follow the directions. That doesn't mean that animals can't develop some pretty complex combinations of signal and response, such as when primates are taught human sign language. But there isn't a level of interpretation and understanding that allows for the full complexity of a human language. And that's because, uniquely, humans possess a chunk of brain called the language center. Or rather, language centers. Because there are several. And those allow humans to actually comprehend language in a conceptual, rational way, rather than merely as a sort of stimulus and response way. For proof of this complexity, consider the condition of aphasia. Aphasia occurs when one of the language-producing and comprehending parts of the brain become damaged. 
primarily either Broca's area or Vinica's area. Both are named for the scientists who discovered and studied them. When Broca's area is damaged, an individual can lose the ability to form complex sentences and is generally limited to nouns and verbs. When Vernica's area is damaged, an individual loses their ability to connect words to concepts and ideas. They still speak in complex sentences, but those sentences are garbled because the individual is using the wrong words. In both cases, individuals may also develop difficulty in understanding what is being said to them, but the individual can retain a clear understanding of their own thoughts and what they themselves think they are saying. Both areas are fundamental in both producing and comprehending language, along with several others with complicated names like the angular gyrus and the supramarginal gyrus and the auditory cortices. But it's their interconnectivity that is really vital. In the human brain, various areas are tightly interconnected and constantly pass information back and forth. Even in animals that have structures similar to the human language centers, such as old-world macaque monkeys, those centers aren't wired together nearly as tightly. But we digress. Our point was about language and how language is uniquely human because it allows us to communicate in very complex ways, but also because it allows us to form complex thoughts. We're all familiar with the idea of a voice in our heads. That is, when we consciously think about complex ideas, we tend to think about them in words. And there has been a lot of research regarding the importance of complex language in the development of intelligence. One of the most fascinating was a series of questionnaires given to deaf and hearing impaired individuals. It turns out that many hearing impaired individuals do think in language. Those who lost their hearing long after coming to understand language, for example in an accident, continue to have an inner voice. Others, who know sign language, either see hand signs in their mind's eye or else feel their hands forming the signs for their thoughts and their minds, their minds, uh, tactical sensations. In point of fact, the importance of language and the ability to develop and identify and to form complex thoughts was a central theme of George Orwell's 1949 dystopian novel entitled 1984. In the novel, a totalitarian regime named English Socialism, or Ingsoc, has gained control of Britain and most of the Western world. And while the novel introduced numerous dystopian ideas, such as leadership through a cult of personality and Big Brother, constant surveillance, and the encouragement of people to betray their own friends and family to the government for various crimes, the most chilling idea was the idea of Newspeak. Newspeak was the official language of Ingsoc, and it was a work of art, not just for what it contained, but what it did not contain. It contained only positive ideas, those that the regime deemed positive anyway, and lacked a way to discuss in complex terms any idea deemed negative. It did, however, contain a word thought crime, which collected all of the ideas not contained in Newspeak. The idea was, if you made it impossible to speak about dangerous ideas, you made it impossible to think about dangerous ideas. And before you even started thinking about dangerous ideas, you were already in violation of the law. And there's a lot of psychology to back that up. But we digress. See, we really don't want to discuss language designed to facilitate thought and communication. 
Instead, we want to discuss some other types of languages. See, when we think of languages like English and German and French and Spanish and Japanese and Russian and Greek and Latin and Hindi, we think of words and syntax that allow groups of similar peoples from similar cultures with similar values and ideas to communicate clearly with each other. But languages can serve other purposes, and they can be more specialized. And that brings us around to the idea of jargon. The word jargon is derived from an old French word for the chirping of birds. The word derived from an earlier Latin word, garire, meaning to chatter. And it originally referred to unintelligible gibberish or jibber-jabber, which is just fun to say. Incidentally, jibber-jabber is an English term because the English love replicated sounds. And it comes from two earlier words, gibber, which was used by Shakespeare to describe fast, unintelligible chatter, and jabber that comes from gabble, which means to speak rapidly and inarticulately. But again, we digress. Jargon is a subtype of language that is used in a particular context and is generally difficult to understand outside of that context. While jargon is dependent upon another language for most of its vocabulary and syntax, that is its words and its rules and its structures, jargon can include unique words specific only to it or it can use vocabulary in a unique and specific way. Thus, you could define jargon as the technical terminology and specialized idioms of a specific activity or group. For example, consider doctors. Doctors have some very specific and highly technical ways to communicate ideas unique to their profession. They use shorthands like BP for blood pressure and IM for an injection that is to be delivered into the muscle. They use the word agonal as an adjective to describe a major negative condition like agonal breathing. Or consider scientists. When they use the word theory, it means accepted fact or law of the universe, which is very different from the way someone like a police officer would use it. Speaking of police officers, they have their own jargon. Code 8 means that a police officer is in imminent danger and needs help. Code 11 means that an individual is at the scene of a crime. For that matter, police officers have a particular mode of speech that describes people as suspects, witnesses, victims, and individuals. They rarely just say person. And they also have idioms like the individual assumed room temperature, which is a way of saying the person died. The legal world and the business world are full of idioms like due diligence, which means to do the proper research before making a decision, and sweat equity, which means being rewarded for your work with partial ownership of a business instead of with a salary. We normally associate jargon with specific professions, and to be honest, that's what most jargon is for. It is to facilitate precise communication between members of a specific profession or group. Now, many people accuse users of jargon as purposely using jargon to obfuscate meaning and divide the world between the in-group and the out-group. But that is rarely fair. For example, the legal jargon in which most contracts and laws are written is not designed to hide meaning. In point of fact, legal jargon, like scientific jargon, is concerned with being as precise as possible and leaving little room for errors and misunderstandings. The problem is, that jargon generally focuses on precision rather than straightforwardness. That is, the more precisely you try to say something, the less clear and comprehensible it becomes. But as noted above, 
The precision of jargon allows its speakers not merely to communicate with each other, but also to think about the aspects of their professions in useful ways. But jargon is rarely something that is purposely designed or written. In point of fact, jargon is something that tends to build up in a profession over many, many years. And this was much to the chagrin of French philosopher Étienne Bonneau de Condillac, who decried the accidental nature of jargon in 1782 when he said, Every science requires a special language because every science has its own ideas. In fact, it seems that one ought to begin by composing this language, but people begin by speaking and writing, and the language remains to be composed. Now, although jargon is generally meant to allow for precise communication between members of a special group, there are some types of jargon with more complex purposes. For example, a slang is a jargon used by members of a specific culture or subgroup to identify their own and to exclude others. It is a social jargon. Slangs can also be cultural, as can be seen in comparing the differences in American slang, British slang, and Canadian slang. And the comical misunderstandings that can result from a British person asking an American to bum a fag, for example, is the last bastion of tired comedy writers everywhere. Well, the second to last. The last bastion is generational slang. For example, in the 1980s, when some of us here at the Word of the Week were growing up, it became popular to refer to things that we liked as bad. So we were treated to endless conversations between children and adults in sitcoms and movies about how, no man, bad is good, it's good to be bad. Slang can also be a part of a particular subculture. For example, consider internet leet-speak. And yes, we pronounced that as 1337 at the time. Or the Harlem Jive Talk, which originated in the 1940s and included exchanges such as the following, which was described by Chicago jazz clarinetist Milton Mesero, better known as Mess Mesro. Hey, Mezzy, lay some of that hard cut and mess on me. I'm short a deuce of blips, but I'll straighten you out later. But perhaps one of the most well-known slangs among game masters who insist on injecting terrible accents into their role-playing game sessions is the regional slang known as Cockney Rhyming Slang. Now, you may never have heard of the slang, but you definitely know about the Cockney accent. It's one of the most famous accents in the world. If you want an example of a Cockney accent, just watch Disney's 1964 feature musical Mary Poppins. In it, a terrifying witch collapses the entire British banking system to teach a man a lesson about taking care of his own damn children. And Julie Andrews' co-star, American comedian Dick Van Dyke, spent the entire film affecting a Cockney accent in what is now regarded to be the most terrible example of accent work in cinematic history. And while many people lambasted poor Dick Van Dyke for many years for his voice work, the actor explained that it was not really his fault. In fact, the film's producer only sent him for a single session with a voice coach. And the voice coach was not from East London, nor from London, nor even from England. He was from Ireland. And according to Dick Van Dyke, the coach's Cockney accent was even worse than his own. Hello, Miss Locke. I got one for you. Miss Locke likes to walk in the park with Andrew. <laughs> Hello, Andrew. 
From that digression, you might have gathered that Cockneys are charmingly regional English folk who were born in the region known as the East End of London. However, this isn't entirely accurate. The term Cockney is a bit more complex than that. See, once upon a time, a Cockney was a slang term for an effeminate man or a spoiled child. That's how Geoffrey Chaucer used it in 1386. Incidentally, he grew up in the East End of London. Gradually, the term became a pejorative term for a city dweller in general and a Londoner in specific. Meanwhile, the East End of London was home to a group of roving produce vendors, costermongers in the term of the day. That particular group was extremely tight-knit and developed their own subculture. And this group became known as the Bow Bells Cockneys because of the location of a nearby church, the Church of St. Mary Le Beau. It was said that a Bow Bells Cockney was anyone who was born within earshot of the church's bells. And the word Cockney passed into disuse everywhere else. The Bow Bells Cockney's name was gradually abbreviated simply as Cockneys in much of the world. But to this day, many traditionalists in London still associate the ringing of the bells at St. Mary Le Beau with true Cockney heritage. And that actually caused a stir in 2012, when it was discovered that the ambient city noise had drastically reduced the audible range of the bells. But what does this have to do with slang? Well, the Bow Bells Cockney Costermongers, a phrase that is sure to drive one more wedge between the Word of the Week's producer and its scriptwriter, the Bow Bells Cockney Costermongers of the 1840s had a particular slang that involved replacing the words they actually meant with phrases that rhymed with the words. Instead of climbing the stairs, you'd go up the apples and pears. If you wanted to take a look at something, you'd have a butcher's hook. Now, if that's not maddening enough to try to figure out, it became customary to drop the rhyming word. So if I wanted to invite you to head up the stairs to look at the new painting I bought, I'd tell you, I bought a new painting, up the apples, and have a butcher's. Now, those are simple, famous examples. But the real delight in the slang is that many of the replacements are clever, witty, sarcastic, or ironic. For example, instead of a wife, you'd refer to your trouble and strife. And if you wanted to go to the gym after work, you'd be visiting Fatboy Slim. But what's even more interesting is that Cockney rhyming slang probably began as an argo. An argo is a type of jargon that is specifically meant to conceal its meaning from outsiders. It's also called a cryptolect, or... And this is finally where we get to the word of the week, a cant. An argo is similar to a slang in that it is shared by a particular in-group, usually a very tightly knit one, but it does not exist solely for a bit of fun cultural tribalism. Instead, it exists to allow a group to communicate secretly. And the most famous cant of all was the thieves cant. For example, Suppose you spotted an inattentive rich man and you want a friend to help you rob his house. You can't just say those things in public. If someone heard you, they'd turn you in. So you might instead tell your friend you'd spotted a rum cully and suggest you heave the booth. See, in the mid-1500s, crime was running rampant in England. King Henry VIII warned that there were some 13,000 rogues and masterless men engaging in criminal activity. Worse, they would gather together to team up or share useful information. And while those numbers are probably an exaggeration, it was true that there was a lot of crime among the poor and disenfranchised, and they did meet to exchange information. And over time, 
they did develop a sort of code language that was eventually nicknamed Thieves' Cant. This is also what gave rise to the fictional cliché of the medieval thieves' guild, which probably did not exist as anything more than small bands akin to street gangs. In point of fact, organized crime as we understand it today originated in the mid-1800s in the form of street gangs in cities like New York via the vigilante law enforcers of Sicily that would give rise to the Mafia. Because of the fear of crime, Thieves' Cant dictionaries became very popular. One of the earliest was included as part of a book about English criminals called The Fraternity of Vagabonds. Published in 1561 by John Audelay, the author indicated he had come by his information through numerous interviews with subjects who spoke on condition of anonymity for fear their fellow thieves would kill them. Such books became very popular in England and remained popular until the 1800s. Thieves' Cant, or Thieves' Latin, along with the Thieves' Guild and Gangs, became popular features of literature as well. For example, consider Charles Dickens' famous novel Oliver Twist. That said, given the prominence of books outlining the various scams and tricks that criminals would use, as well as their secret code language that were published over a period of 300 years, it's a wonder that criminals were able to get away with anything at all. And that has led some historians to wonder how much of Thieves' Cant is real, and how much was just fictionalized, either romantically or to cause fear and sell books. Answering this question is further complicated by the fact that many of the dictionaries and books plagiarized each other. But that didn't stop E. Gary Gygax from including Thieves' Cant as a feature of Dungeons & Dragons. Starting with the very first edition, any player whose character chose the character class of Thief, or later Rogue, was automatically granted the ability to speak and understand Thieves' Cant. Over the years, many players and game masters argued about the nature of Thieves' Cant and how much could be conveyed using it. Now, you understand that it's just a collection of slang terms of particular interest to thieves, but Thieves' Cant is not the strangest cryptolect in Dungeons & Dragons. In that same edition, Gygax also introduced the Alignment Tongue. See, every character in D&D has an alignment, a shorthand for their moral and ethical beliefs. These include a statement on the character's general morality, good, neutral, or evil, and a statement on the character's view on the importance of society vis-a-vis -vis individual freedom, lawful, neutral, or chaotic. And each of the nine alignments that arise from those combinations like lawful, neutral, and chaotic, evil, and neutral, good, each alignment had a secret language of its own. Knowledge of the language is automatic, and stranger still, if you changed alignment, you also forgot your previously known alignment language. Weird, huh? The idea disappeared from AD&D's second edition and beyond, but it did find its way into various editions of D&D's introductory sister publication, Basic Dungeons & Dragons. In that game, there were only three alignments, lawful, neutral, and chaotic, and each had its own language. Many years later, Gygax admitted in an online interview that the idea wasn't particularly well thought out and that he regretted its inclusion. He explained that he didn't want Thieves' Cant to be the only secret language in the game, and he explained that he had intended alignment languages to serve in much the same way that Latin served as a language for the Roman Catholic Church. See, the Roman Catholic Church continued to use Latin long after the fall of the Roman Empire as the official language for its scriptures, rites, and services essentially making Latin a cryptolect of Catholicism. 
This practice went from tradition to church law in 1570, and Latin remained the official language for all Catholic services until 1967, when local churches were granted the authority to choose their own languages and almost uniformly chose whatever local language their parishioners spoke. Because clearly, it is often more important to be approachable than it is to be precise. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.